From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, this is Catholic Military Life, the only official podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. And for this edition, it's my high honor and privilege to welcome to our podcast Father Andrew M. Calandriello, who joins us by telephone from Watching, New Jersey. Father Calandriello, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here, and uh, I look forward to uh, this uh, discussion. And our d- the topic of our discussion is the uh, four chaplains uh, who uh, went down with the SS Dorchester uh, during World War II back on February 3rd, 1943. And we're recording this uh, podcast on uh, February uh, 16th of uh, 2022. So it's been 79 years uh, since um, Reverend George Fox, Rabbi Alexander Good, Reverend Clark Poling, and Father John Washington uh, went down with a torpedoed um, troop transport ship in the North Atlantic, not far from Greenland, after it was struck by a uh, German submarine. And the uh, reason uh, we're talking to you, Father Calandriello, is because your dad, uh, Michael Calandriello, was among the uh, 900 or so men aboard the SS Dorchester when it sank. Um, tell us about that, sir. Uh, what did your dad tell you about this experience? And uh, fill us in. Well, when... Uh I was a very young boy growing up in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my father rarely would ever speak about it. Um, I can recall uh, some nights hearing him wake up screaming in the night and uh, my mother calming him down. And the next morning I would ask my mother, you know, what was the matter with, with uh, Pop last night? And she said, Daddy still has some very bad nightmares about what he went through in World War II. So, you know, I never knew much about what my dad's experiences were, because uh, he just wouldn't talk about it. And then I recall um, in 1963, the Sunday New York Times had a two-page article about the sinking of the Dorchester and the story of the four chaplains. And I guess at the time I was about... 13 years old, and I read the, the story, and I was excited, and I ran into my dad, and we were living in North Jersey at the time, and I said, Pop, look, this was the ship you were on, and he looked at me, and he says, yeah, yeah, I know, I, I don't want to read the story, and my mother said, just leave Daddy alone, he's got bad memories, and so, you know, again, he would never really talk about it, until, I think it was in, uh, Four years later, 1967, I was accepted to Seton Hall University at the, uh, to the minor seminary there for the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey. And my dad drove me down there. We met with Monsignor Connell, who was the director of the uh, minor seminary. And we were chatting, and uh, Monsignor Connell looked at my dad and said, "Uh, did you serve in the service? And my father said, yeah, I was in the Army Air Corps. Uh, in World War II, and uh, Monsignor Connell said, well, I was a Navy chaplain. I was stationed in the Pacific. 
He said, but I had a very close friend and classmate who was an Army chaplain, and he lost his life in the North Atlantic. He says, uh, Father John Washington. And he said, uh, he, he was one of the four chaplains. Have you ever heard the story? And my father looked at him and said, Monsignor, I know it very well. I was on the ship that night. <laughs> and that was the first time my dad really started to speak and open up about it. And I began to learn a lot more. And I guess at that point, he suddenly became more at ease with, you know, his recollections and everything else. Um, I have copies of letters that he wrote to his family uh, after the incident when he, got, when he safely got to Greenland, uh, where he was stationed for the, for the, uh, for the war, during the war. And I use that a lot in the talk I give on the four chaplains and based on my dad's recollections of that night. And in these letters, you know, he's questioning. Now, these letters were written right after it, so it's, we're still 1943 and all. And he's saying, why did I survive that night and so many of my buddies died? Why did God spare me? And, you know, I find, I find the letters very, very moving, very touching, and it really says a lot about what my dad was dealing with at the time. And the story of uh, the four chaplains is just incredible uh, in that the uh, ship began sinking very quickly after it was struck by the torpedo, and it was not able to alert its uh, uh, escort convoy because uh, flares were uh, not allowed during this uh, crossing. Right, right. And um, so, uh, and also, Father John Washington, one of the four who was seen going down with the ship after he and the three other chaplains gave their uh, life vests to uh, some of the other men on board. Right. Uh, uh, Father John Washington, like you, went to Seton Hall. Yes, uh, Father John Washington was a, a priest of the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey, as, as I was. Um, be, uh, and he attended Seton Hall University, and he also attended the major seminary, uh, which was in uh, Darlington, New Jersey, up north. And I went also to the same major seminary. I, I knew a little bit about Father Washington uh, when I was a seminarian, and... Uh, you know, some of the older priests that I came across uh, re were in the seminary with him, and they recall him as being a, a kind of a happy-go-lucky type of guy. He was one of 11 children, uh, grew up in Newark, and they always said, you know, back in the old days, the seminary had a lot of <laughs> rules and regulations that you had to follow. I guess it was like being in the military. And they said Father John Washington always found a way to uh, get around some of the rules, and, you know, he was just a bit of a prankster. <laughs> and also, they, they remember him having a beautiful Irish tenor voice, and he sang in the choir. You know, so he had uh, quite, quite the personality. I'm talking to Father Andrew Calandriello, who is uh, on the phone with us from uh, watching New Jersey, and... The subject of our conversation is the four chaplains, and your dad, Father Calandriella, was on board. Now, you mentioned some of the letters. Uh, can you fill us in some of the details that uh, you discovered about uh, this, uh, this incident from the letters that you read that your dad wrote right after the sinking of the SS Dorchester? Well, one of the 
thing, things I found striking um, was that when the, you know, the uh, night before, the uh, the Dorchester um, hit rough seas, and uh, one of the letters my dad recounts how a lot of the men got seasick, <clears throat> and uh, you know morale was kind of low because uh, they were they were told that there would be U-boats in the area. And that's why they had the Coast Guard cutter escort and all that, which was typical of when you had a convoy uh, going overseas. And so the men were on edge and everything else. And he talks about how the chaplains put together, um, you know, I guess to kind of ease the men's mind and, um, you know, get them to relax. They had some kind of musical skits put on and, uh, you know, to kind of... uh, you know, break the monotony. And uh, then my dad recalled uh, that some of the men started having crap games and uh, card games uh, in the galley. And he says he remembered seeing Father Washington, I think one of the other chaplains, maybe it was Chaplain Fox, walking among the men. And, uh, you know, when I think about that, I, you know, based on a little bit I learned about Father Washington, I wouldn't be surprised if he participated in the crap game himself, you know, or one of the card games, you know. So uh, that's, that's uh, I, I like to think, I, I kind of like put that in my mind and say I wouldn't be surprised, you know. But uh, my dad said that they were told to sleep with their life vests on and full uniforms and uh you know my dad said when the torpedo hit you know he said the whole ship struck and my father's first reaction was oh my god it's happening so the ss dorchester was making its way from new york harbor to greenland uh, right uh, over a uh, a route that was known to be infested with german u-boats yes they called it the u-boat alley and so the men on board, including your dad, knew there was a, a, a strong possibility the ship would be torpedoed. Yes. Uh, matter of fact, they stopped over in Newfoundland, uh, I guess, for fuel and bring on supplies and everything. And soon after they left Newfoundland, one of the Coast Guard cutters' escorts uh, reported that they were being hunted, that there was a U-boat uh, following the convoy. So they gave orders to stand, stay close together, you know. And for some reason, the Dorchester drifted a little further back from where the Coast Guard cutters were. Now, I don't, this was an old ship. It had been commissioned in the 20s as a cruise ship that that sailed up and down the Atlantic seaboard, down to Florida, the the Caribbean, and that sort of thing. And it was commissioned by the... um, uh, military, you know, to be a troop transport. And it was a good-sized ship, you know, and it was outfitted to, you know, handle, uh, you know, having, uh, you know, uh, servicemen on board and, and that sort of thing. So for some reason it had drifted uh, behind the Coast Guard escort. And I guess this uh, U-boat commander, we know his name was Carl Jürgen Wachter, and I think he was about 20 years of age from what we've been able to learn. And so he identified, he saw UST on the bow of the ship, and he knew that was a troop transport. And so he felt he had one, um, you know, he had one quick 
chance to fire his torpedoes and try to get this ship. Uh, and so he fired, I think, three of them, and one of them hit the Dorchester, and uh, it created a, a tremendous amount of damage. And I guess because it was such an old ship, uh, it began to uh, sink right away. It took on water, and I think the captain... Uh, ordered abandoned ship almost within minutes and uh there were a lot of men that were killed from the explosion uh a lot of the lifeboats that were on board were destroyed as a result of it and my dad <clears throat> started to uh you know go up to his uh, lifeboat station as they were ordered to do and he re i remember he in one of the letters he recalled that he and one of his close buddies, Monty, started to go up one of the gangways, and it was a press of men going to the deck. And Monty said to my dad, Mike, let's cut through the galley, go up the other side. And my father recalled he started to follow Monty, but he said it was like an unseen hand told him, stay put, you can get up on deck from here, just, just be patient. And my dad did. And he finally got up to his lifeboat station. And he said he got into the lifeboat with these other guys. And when they started to lower the lifeboat, the lines became entangled. And the bow of the lifeboat pitched forward, and they all went down into the water. Now, this is freezing water up in the north. Freezing Atlantic. water. Yep. He said, he, my father said there was a beautiful, clear night. Seas were calm. But he said it was, you know, February 3rd, North Atlantic. And he said when he hit the water, he said the shock didn't hit him for at least 10 seconds. And my dad had his full military fatigues on, boots, and his life vest. And he remarked the first thing he, he said, thank God the life vest is helping me stay afloat. But my dad knew how to swim, and he knew, you know, i got to keep moving. So one of the s soldiers or merchant seamen was trying to right the... Uh, lifeboat so he took an axe and he was trying to cut the lines to free it and i guess a soldier from up on the deck panicked and jumped from the top of the deck and went right through the lifeboat so you know and the lifeboats were wooden they were old and whatnot and so my father said that kind of dashed our hopes that we were going to get into a lifeboat. So my father felt, you know, the water was cold. He had to keep moving. Otherwise, he was worried about hypothermia. So he began to swim. And he knew, too, you know, we've got to get away from the ship. They were yelling to people to get away from the ship. And so he saw a light, and he swam toward the light. And he said there was another lifeboat that was floating with men in it. And this soldier, another soldier, pulled my dad on board. And he said the boat was crammed. And he said that uh, when, as soon as he got in the boat, there was uh, a merchant seaman, an African-American, Charlie Williams, who was rowing the boat. And he said to my dad, son, what size boot do you have? My dad had, I think, I think a size 11 and a half. And he says, you better remove one to help bail out this boat. And the boat had a leak in it. Oh, so my dad and a bunch of the other soldiers, you know, they had their boots off and they were bailing this boat out, you know, to make sure that that it didn't sink, you know. So he was lucky. The boat was pretty crowded. He said, and he says, you know, they looked back towards the Dorchester, and it was it was it was starting to sink 
pretty quickly, and there were a lot of men still on the decks. And he's, my father said they were either struck with fear, they didn't know what to do. So he said they began to yell from the lifeboats, jump, just get off the boat. And he said with all the chaos and, and everything else, he said, uh, I guess they could not be heard. And the Dorchester sank, and I think they estimated about 23 minutes. Wow. Did your dad see the four chaplains on deck as the ship went down? He said, no, he didn't, he didn't see them per se because of all the men. He heard about what happened later on uh, once he got rescued, uh, the, the four chaplains. But there were a couple of men that were pulled out of the water that they did recount seeing them helping, helping men. Uh, you know, and whatnot. So he said that uh, or about what happened with the four chaplains. So, well, this is an incredible story. Now, just think about this: you have four chaplains uh, from different faiths, all assigned to the SS Dorchester. They had life jackets. They had life vests on. Uh, they had their overcoats on. Um, one of the chaplains, I think it was uh, Rabbi Good, he actually took off his gloves and put them on the hands of one of the men. Uh, another chaplain uh, took off his overcoat, gave it to a, to a, to another man. So they took off, because what happened was the life uh, vest lockers uh, were emptied pretty quickly. And uh, now, uh, whether or not it was a case of whether there weren't enough life vests on board, or I, I think it could have been when the torpedo struck, you know, there was a lot of damage to the ship, and maybe some of the life vest lockers got destroyed. Some men in the panic uh, ran up from below, and they forgot either forgot their life vests or they just didn't have them. So these chaplains, they took off their own life vests and gave them to a to uh, four soldiers, and then uh, they made a decision that they were going to stay on the ship with the men. You know, there were wounded men, there was chaos, there were men that were afraid to jump into the water because it was cold or they couldn't swim. And so these four brave men, you know, they made a mutual decision that they were going to stay on the ship. I mean, they could have made a decision, you know, let's let's get off and try to save ourselves, but they did not. Living out the true meaning of Christ's message, no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, as I, as I have mentioned in my talk, uh, you know, Rabbi Good didn't ask the soldier he gave his vest to, are you Jewish? And you know, uh, the Protestant minister, Protestant chaplains didn't ask soldiers if they were Protestant, and Father Washington didn't ask the soldier he gave his life vest to, are you Catholic? I mean, they, they just did what they felt they had to do as chaplains, and, uh, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, they knew they were going to die, but uh, as, as the gospel message says, no greater love than this. I'm talking to Father Andrew Calandriello, joining us by phone from New Jersey, and we're talking about the four chaplains, the famous story of the four chaplains who went down with the SS Dorchester on February 3rd, 1943, after it was struck by a German torpedo in the North Atlantic, the Dorchester on its way to Greenland from New York Harbor. Um, 
Why was the captain of the Dorchester instructed not to use flares? Do you know? Well, from what I could could glean from, uh, there's a couple of books written about the uh, the incident, and what I could glean was that they felt the U-boat was still in the area, and they were worried that the U-boat could attack the uh, the, the Coast Guard cutter escorts. Uh, my dad also said that when he was in the lifeboat, they were worried that the U-boat might surface and strafe men that were in the water, because it was, it, it, it was known that some of the U-boats did that, that they would surface and they'd strafe some of the men in the waters. Uh, but from what I could glean from uh, these books written about the incident, the U-boat commander I guess he was concerned. He knew the Coast Guard cutter escorts. I think two of the ships had uh, depth charges on board. So I guess he was worried about, you know, um, they could start dropping depth charges and whatnot. So I think it was a matter of some kind of protocol that, you know, don't fire flares because you're going to give away your location and, and, and that sort of thing. So that's why there was a bit of confusion Um in the very beginning, uh, there was even a decision made on the the commander who was in charge of the convoy as to whether or not they should turn around and go back and try to get men out of the water because they were worried, well, you know, if this U-boat is still around, it could start attacking us, and then, you know, we're going to have more loss of life. So, you know, there was, there was all this back and forth going on as to, to what was the right thing to do. So the Coast Guard cutters uh, had no way of knowing at first that the Dorchester had been torpedoed. Um, I, they heard an explosion. They heard the explosion, and they saw, you know, I guess uh, the light uh, from the flames and, and everything else. Um, but I think the order was uh, to, to just they stopped their engines. And my father said that when they were in the lifeboat, they were shouting to the, the Coast Guard cutter that was nearest to them. And the Coast Guard cutter told them to begin rowing towards them, that the Coast Guard cutter was not going to turn on its engines and head towards them. So they had to, to row towards the uh, Coast Guard cutter. And I think it was the Escanaba, that was the name of the cutter, that eventually... Uh, you know, rescued my father and the other men in the boat. So your dad, Michael Calandriello, uh, had gone up to the deck with his friend Monty. Right. And they split up in the galley. Well, what happened was Monty went through the galley, according to my dad. My father stayed put at the bottom of the gangway. And he said later on when he was rescued, he asked about his friend Monty, and he found out that Monty was not among the survivors. As and I have a copy of a letter that my dad wrote to, I think it was Monty's fiance, and he and he recounts in there about how close they were, and he says, you know, I feel badly, you know, Monty was a great guy, and I feel sorry for you, uh, you know, usual, you know, that sort of thing. And again, my dad's saying, I I still wonder why I survived. And Monty died, and you know when I when I asked my father about this later on, he said if I had followed Monty through the galley, he says you and I might not be standing here right now. 
And your dad was among a minority of men on board who survived. There were, yes. uh, were over yes. 900 men on, on the ship, and, right. and more than 700 of them died, so the chances of survival were about one in five. Yes, and uh, I think even some of the men that they were able to pull out of the water succumbed to the, to the hypothermia, uh, you know, soon after. Um, you know, and the, and the the people on board weren't just uh, army personnel. There were there were some Coast Guard uh, men on board. There was also civilian contractors that were going, I guess, to help uh, complete the construction of this air base that was being built in Greenland. And so, you know, you had people from different backgrounds on board, uh, in, in addition to the uh, to the to military personnel. And also, you know, the Air Force was not a separate branch of the service then, so the Army was the Army Air Corps, you know. And And, and that was their mission in Greenland to help build this airfield. Yes, yeah. And there was a a military base that had been established there, and that's where my father spent uh, the remainder of the war, you know, when he was in Greenland. Well, the sacrifice of the four chaplains, all from different faiths, who uh, went down with the Dorchester after giving their life jackets to others on board, was not lost uh, on the nation uh, at the time. In fact, uh, just a few months later, on December 19th, 1944, less than a year later, Congress posthumously awarded each of the chaplains the Purple Heart and the Distinguished Service Cross. Uh, now, they were uh, wanted to give them the Medal of Honor, but uh, t- technically the criteria for the Medal of Honor required that the sacrifice take place under fire, and these four chaplains acted after after the torpedo. So instead, they created the four chaplains uh, uh, award. Um, in just the few minutes we have left, uh, Father Calandriello, thank you so much for talking to me and, and uh, telling the story of your dad, Michael Calandriello, who was among the more than 900 aboard the USS, uh, excuse me, the SS Dorchester. Uh, how has the memory of this and the reality of it uh, affected you in your life and ministry? Well, when I, when I look at uh, the heroism and the courage that the four chaplains displayed, you know, you can't help but marvel at them. And, you know, a lot of times when I give this talk about about them, I often think to myself, what would I do if I was in their shoes that night? What would, what would I have done? Would I have had the courage and the faith to make that kind of a sacrifice? You know, and it, it makes you pause and, and, and wonder and, and marvel at what, what they did. Um, and, you know, going back to the award of the Purple Heart and everything else, I mean, the chapel of the four chaplains in, in the Philadelphia Navy Yard is a memorial to them. And I'm one of the board of directors there and everything else. And we have a few times gone back to Washington, D.C. and said, you know, don't you think these, these men should be awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously? And we're told well, it was not an active combat zone. I have a hard time accepting that. I mean, the North Atlantic was a combat zone. I mean, there were battles fought in the North Atlantic and and everything else, and there were a lot of ships that were sunk by German U-boats and everything else. And so, I don't know. I, it, we, we sometimes talk among ourselves, the board of directors, about maybe trying to, uh, you know, 
petition Washington again about getting them awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. Um, so, you know, it's I, I just have a hard time buying that, that kind of argument or logic, you know. Um, and... Uh, I hear yeah. you. Well, um, just uh, uh, catch us up to date. Now, you you were ordained a Catholic uh, priest and then decided to pursue a, a career in business, and you're you're back in ministry now as a, as an Episcopal yes. priest. Tell us just in a, in a in a nutshell, wrap it up for us uh, uh, about your uh, faith journey. Well, I was <clears throat> ordained a Roman Catholic priest for the Archdiocese of Newark, which was the same Archdiocese John Washington was priest in. And uh, I was ordained back in 1975, and then 1980, uh, I became somewhat disillusioned with the direction the Roman Catholic Church was taking under uh, Pope John Paul II, and I decided to take a leave uh, from the ministry. And I was fortunate to uh, get a job working uh, for a British insurance company in maritime insurance. And so I then managed to forge a career for myself in maritime insurance, and I worked for various corporations during my 30-year career. And then I retired about six years ago. My last company I worked for was AIG, and uh, retired and and everything else. And I was like, okay, uh, what am I going to do with my life now? So I knew the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't take me back because I was married. So uh, I I was familiar with this Episcopal parish not too far from where I live here in Wachung. And I went over there, and I spoke to the rector, and he said, you know, why don't you come over to our side? And I said, well, we'll take And he said, well, he said, I'll get you a meeting with our bishop, and he says, you could talk to him. He says, you know, we don't reordain you. He says, we recognize your, your holy orders and everything. He says, you're just transitioning your holy orders over to the, to the Anglican Catholic side. So I met with the bishop, and, uh, you know, he agreed, and I said, look, you know, I'm, I think at the time I was 68 years old, and I said, you know, I'm not looking for, to be a full-time pastor somewhere, and he said, no, no, he said, we use you as a supply priest, or we sometimes commonly refer to them as bullpen priests, you know, where you help out at a parish and all that sort of thing. So I went through kind of a vetting process and, and all this, and then I was formally received into the Episcopal Church uh, about two years ago now. And I do. I am what they call a supply priest, and uh, every Sunday I'm usually at a different parish uh, helping out. Uh, this uh, past two Sundays and uh, three Sundays, and the next Sunday coming up, I'm going to be in Pittstown, New Jersey, helping out, and then I'll be moving on to another church in uh, Woodbridge, New Jersey. You know, so I'm I'm booked almost every Sunday now till June. And I'm enjoying being back in the ministry. And every new parish that I go to, I tell the story of the four chaplains to get that story out there and make people aware of it. Well, it seems fitting that uh, your dad, who was uh, who survived the sinking of the SS Dorchester, uh, that you would have a career in maritime insurance. Yes, <laughs> I often dwe- I often dwell on that too. Yeah, it uh, it was really. Uh, kind of uh, something I just, you know, I, uh, throughout my life, I always, you know, sometimes somebody will say to me, you know, you've, it sounds like you've led a very interesting life. And, and a lot of times I pause to think and I say, you know, God has been very good to me and he has given me a lot of opportunities in my life. Uh, 
and I'm very grateful to him. So then when I suddenly felt like I was being called back to the active ministry, you know, I remember I said to my wife, Mary, I said, I owe it to God. I want to go back and do this because he's been so good to me. And I want to go back and serve him and serve others once again as his priest. And every night I thank God for giving me this opportunity once again. Amen. I've been talking to Father Andrew Calandriello, joining us by telephone from Watching, New Jersey. Uh, Father Calandriello's dad, Michael Calandriello, was among the men aboard the SS Dorchester when it was torpedoed by a German U-boat on February 3, 1943. Father Calandriello, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, You're quite welcome. It was my pleasure and honor. Thank you very much. Catholic Military Life is a podcast of the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, erected by Pope St. John Paul II in 1985 to provide for the free exercise of Catholic faith in the U.S. military, VA medical centers, and the government's civilian workforce beyond U.S. borders. 1.8 million American Catholics worldwide depend on the Archdiocese and its endorsed chaplains for pastoral care. For more information, visit millarch.org. The Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, serving those who serve.